Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Special education has evolved considerably over the decades, if not the entire past century. We've gone from parents hiding their children with disabilities and disorders to institutionalizing these children, and then to bringing children with special needs into schools but keeping them separate from so-called normal kids, to finally inclusion in general education with assistance. However, for all the progress we've made, there's still a need for improvement. Although there are federal regulations on how children should be accommodated in school, most states are left to interpret these regulations in their own way. And even school districts have some leeway to decide how some, if not all, of those requirements must be met. Contrary to what some people might think, there can be huge disparities from state to state, school district to school district, and sometimes between individual schools in how special education is implemented. Or for that matter, who even qualifies for special education? So what can parents do to make certain that their kids are receiving the best help in school? And what can you do to change the way a school or a school district or even a state approaches special education regulations? Our guest for this episode can offer some answers. Suzanne Wilcox is a special education advocate whose company, Hope Educational Consulting, LLC, helps families deal with schools and school districts to ensure special needs children are given all the help they deserve. She's also worked with a state government to change laws in order to adapt new regulations on learning disabilities that weren't recognized before. I started the interview by asking Suzanne about her background and how she became a special education advocate. Most um, passion and um, advocacy start is with a personal connection. And I have four children. Uh, how I started on the journey really was my oldest son, who is now 26 but he was identified in early elementary school as um, a student with dyslexia and ADHD. And then as the years went on, um, through elementary, realized that he's also a gifted student. Um, and that, as you can imagine, proposed a lots of difficulty with where he was intellectually. Yeah, I can believe it. And also where he was academically. So that started my intrigue and interest of the world of special education and the relationship with the school districts. And then I, my, I've got a younger son who's typically, who's 23, who's typically developing, and um, just an average student, high average. And then I have twins, and they are now 19. And one of my twins um, was gravely ill at eight weeks old and ended up in the hospital. And that added to my interest and understanding of disabilities. Through the outcome of his medical condition, we learned several years after that that he had autism. And so that threw me over the brink. Should I say of really diving into what what resources can I look into? What things can I do to educate myself to help him? Right now, you um, your son. So he he showed autism right from the beginning, although it was, it was as an illness, or how did that? Uh... Well, originally he was he got gravely ill at eight weeks old, hmm. and he had a form of pneumonia. Oh. and ended up being in the hospital for five weeks and um, in intensive care. And the, the always constant concern was, how does this affect long-term right. his hospitalization and his difficulty? And when we, you know, the doctors at the time can only give you a we don't know, right. they send you on your way. And then as he progressed and grew, he typically was growing at the same rate as his sister, his twin sister, but there was a language delay. Mm. And I, with the gift of two older children, I had an understanding of what that progress should be, as well as his mirror image of his sister right next to him. Right. And he also was one of those children that had some language and some connections until about the age of 18 months to 20 months. And then 
it's as if someone turned a light switch mm-hmm. and things were drastically different. And you hear that quite often in with families with children with autism. Right. And that's where the original concern was years ago of the connection between the immunizations and the onset of autism. Mm-hmm. Now, was your your first son with the dyslexia, was he getting any kind of special education help in school? No. He, we at the time when he was originally identified with a reading disability or concerns about his reading, mm-hmm. we lived in northern Michigan, ah. and he, the kindergarten teacher, who was an excellent teacher, was just explaining to us that he struggled, was struggling to learn, mm-hmm. to read. But also she had an understanding of how smart he was. Ah. And like, you know, like a lot of children that present this way, he able, was able to compensate or do just enough right. to pass. And passing, as we know, is C. C work, B work, and then we add on top of that his attention. Right. And so they a lot of things were explained away to his. It was primarily his attention that right. he had attention deficit. Ah, okay. And then it along the way flushed out that it was more than that. Right. And then I also dug more saying. But I know he can. I know there's more going on here, and that's when we discovered his giftedness. Ah, okay. So really, though, your first uh, your first actual experience with a child that had to have special help in school was your son with autism. Then, yes, that's where it became. Uh, it was much more important and relevant to me, right? Because I couldn't give him the help that he needed. Now, how was the school as far as uh, getting help uh, for him? Well, um, you have to remember that he's 19 years old. Right. And he was, this was 14 years ago or so, that, um, or longer, that he was really um, identified through that process. And... If you think back to what our the public's awareness of autism was about 15 years ago. Right. So at the time, the numbers of um, children with autism were 1 in 2,500 mm-hmm. or even more. So he and his twin sister were part of a pilot project of a preschool that integrated typical and atypical students um, at the elementary school. And she was the uh, model, and he was the um, preschooler that needed support. Mm -hmm. And from that process is when I realized how much I did not know about services for kids through a county or public school program. And he was three years old when he started that. And, you know, as the years have gone by, every milestone of moving from preschool to elementary, elementary to middle, middle to high school, he has been, I refer to as a pioneer, because no, there weren't many documentation or good um, best practices prior to his age group because his age group was a catalyst for the change and the awareness. And that continues now at 19. Well, you know, it's interesting that a lot of people think that special education standards are the same across the United States, but there are actually many different rules and regulations in every state, and there can be some differences in even the way the school district interprets the rules. Now, as someone who's lived in different states and cities and worked with multiple school districts, can you give us some examples of how much of a difference there can be in the way special education is handled? Certainly. As we know, there are federal laws covered under IDEA, which govern special education. Now, each state takes those federal guidelines, and they create their own administrative rules with special education. It's how they've interpreted the federal law. And through that interpretation, 
they, you know, create the governing rules for the state. Then each district then looks at those guidelines from from the state and then interprets it again themselves. So what the federal, an example would be what the federal um, IDEA will state what a rule is in regards to a definition of a disability. What the state regulations do is take that disability and say they'll add additional rules in regards to schools servicing them. A child, for example, with a cognitive impairment would be in a room with other children with cognitively impairments, but the ratio can only be one to nine. So that would be one teacher to nine students. In other states, another state would interpret it one to 15. Hmm. So they'll take those federal guidelines, look at that, and see how they're going to implement it or recommend how they implement it within each district. Mm -hmm. Again, they also look at eligibility categories and look at what is their interpretation of finding a child eligible. Right. Some states actually put percentages of what would qualify or define a student that would be in special education, meaning direct services. Other states interpret it as true um, difference between strengths and weaknesses, that it impairs their learning significantly. And then that is up to the team to decide, an IEP team, a school team, which includes the parents, to determine if that child qualifies or not. Right. So it's, you know, and there's argument that the states that put an actual percentage on it is discriminatory. Um, and I think, you know, that's been a constant debate across the country right. about those percentages because we're not held to a percentage. One day we're one way, one day we're another. And let's, what if a child is 1% above the qualifier? That doesn't mean that they don't need help. Right, right. And then, you know, it's also got to be, uh, frustrating and a challenge that, uh, in many cases, the people who are making the rules have absolutely no experience with special education or even kids with uh, needs for special education. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's what has happened with the Common Core across the United States as well, is you've got legislators determining how to measure the Common Core and determining what's testing is going to measure that, and they don't have any knowledge of education. Right. Other than the little amount of time that they spent in school or whatever it was. Absolutely. Right. And that's, uh, I think that's the biggest challenge, of course, is empathy. Yeah. Trying to get people to understand. Um, so I guess getting right to an issue, what could parents do when they have a conflict with a school or a school district over interpretation issues and getting the right kind of educational help for their special needs children? Well, I, I think um, the most important thing is relationship building and communicating. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is with anything that we do in life is building a relationship And the first thing that you should know and understand is how the chain of command works within your district. And it's usually the first line of defense is the teacher, is a direct contact with the teacher, Mm -hmm. building that relationship with the teacher. And then building that relationship with the principal, the other people within that building that your child is in. And... The next step after the principal would be whomever is above them being the assistant principal or um, not the assistant principal, I'm sorry, the assistant superintendent or the superintendent of the district. Mm -hmm. And then from there it would be the school board. Um, But the most important thing is start at the first line of defense because they're the ones who has direct contact with your child every single day. Right. And also 
I believe the another important thing as you're trying to build those relationships is document your communication and the steps in which you've taken. Right. When you're talking about your child and you're very emotional because it's your child can't do something and you're concerned and upset, mm-hmm. it's important to take moments to just jot down the question that you ask the teacher and the teacher's response. Right. If it only for your own reflection later, it's good, but it's also a nice trail of the things that you have done. So it's correct in your mind if you ever have to repeat it or take a further step. Right. Right. And and I've noticed, too, uh, in our own dealings that uh, what you said about, you know, get a good relationship with the teacher can really make a difference because we've noticed that occasionally teachers will go beyond what has been recommended just to make sure the child is getting the right kind of help. And they can do certain things in the classroom that may not be officially correct, but uh, it'll still help out. Absolutely, because you want to make sure that every day that your child is in that classroom, that that teacher is looking at them as a child that needs some extra support with care and and love, you know, the love that you give them. Mm-hmm. You want to feel safe that they're going off and being taken care of. And the best way to do that is to create that relationship with the teacher. Right. So there's a connection. Right. You've also worked successfully on changing state laws regarding how certain aspects of special education are handled. I'd love to have you Tell our listeners about that situation and what it took to get the state where you were living to change the laws. Sure. I um, to, to tell you a little bit about my background educationally, I am a, have a communications degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I also have a, an advocacy endorsement from William & Mary School of Law. And along the way, I've gotten other certifications, um, and training in ABA and other methodology. I've gotten some training in Norton-Gillingham, though I'm not certified. So I've got an overall broad view of different methodologies to help support what I do as an advocate. When I lived in central Ohio in Columbus, I was involved on the board of the central Ohio branch of the International Dyslexia Association. Hmm. And what we... I was involved on that board for five years. And what we did over those five-year period is really tackle the um, dyslexia issue within the state and the identification of dyslexia as a reading disability. Currently, it's under federal law's definition of a specific learning disability. It's a one-word with no description. Right. And what we did in this process was pull it out as a truly defined disability. And that took us several, several years. We, we went to the legislature with five different bills over, you know, a five to six year period. Wow. And what the most success that we had um, in that last proposal was not only getting the representative to support it, but getting the large corporations within the state to support it. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, money talks. Right. (laughs) If you are, um, they're the ones who are able to flip it because of their relationships with the legislatures within the state. A big backer, that really tipped the scales for us in Ohio was AEP. Uh And the chairman of AEP had a child with dyslexia. Ah, okay. And then also um, there were some other companies that came on board after AEP did Right. that really changed the tides. Right. Now, how do you present to a company to get them to uh, get on board with something like this? Well, again, I, I go back to... What I said previously, it's relationships. Mm-hmm. Building those relationships, finding where they, those people in charge in the corporate level as a chairman or you know, on their steering committees or on their boards that have a personal relationship with the issue mm-hmm. and approach them. 
Right. And believe me, we got said no a lot, or there was empathy, but they didn't want to make any movement. Um, and you get that a lot in Congress, especially. Mm-hmm. There's empathy, but they don't want to take a stance on it necessarily. Right. It's not going to support them for re-election. Right. Unfortunately, that's a lot of the drive these days. Right. And that's where the switch was, having someone in a, at a corporate level take a passion and an interest because they weren't interested in being reelected. Right. And also if they realize that support from a major donator will be uh, more favorable if they support the legislation, then that probably helps out a lot too. It was the, it was the turning point. And so the bill was passed um, four years ago, and it the bill states that first it defines dyslexia mm-hmm. and exactly what it is, and also defines what is the best and um, only research methodology to remediate a, um, someone with dyslexia. Right, and it's is am I am I right in thinking that dyslexia is probably one of the last of the well-known learning disabilities that's still not quite accepted by a lot of states? Yes. There, since we passed our bill, there has been an, uh, a really a wonderful turnabout within the country on identifying it. But interesting enough, it was identified in the 50s by um, Dr. You know, Orton. Mm-hmm. And he and um, a speech pathologist, Gillingham is her name, mm-hmm. created the methodology to really remediate someone with dyslexia. So it has been, it is the most researched disability in reading in the country. And in 1978, I believe, the National Institute of Health also did a probe into reading disabilities and also identified dyslexia during that time. But what happened was a methodology came from New Zealand, I believe, called Reading Recovery. Mm -hmm. And it got taken up by Congress financially and paired with Title I money. And so Title I money is given to schools and they're going to back, you know, their methodology pushed any type of dyslexia identification or mediation that of Orton Gillingham sort of pushed it to the wayside. So when a teacher's being taught at a college level to get their teaching certification, they um, are introduced to recovery. Right. We should probably explain briefly what Title I is and why that uh, winds up getting priority over other types of uh, funding. Title One is a, it's tied to educational um, funding. And the premise of it was to improve education initially, you know, and, and is continued to be that. So every district across the country is eligible for Title One dollars, which improves education. So it'll be over and above what is provided by the local, state, and federal um, taxes that schools receive. So you apply for Title I money. Every district does. And they, um, a lot of things are tied to Title I money, which improves general education. And actually reading and reading supports are a general ed education initiative. It's not necessarily a special education initiative because Every student needs to learn to read. Everyone, every child learns at a different rate. Mm. So title, the monies that are tied to Title I, a lot of them are specifically geared toward the reading aspect and supporting reading and learning to read for all students. Well, reading recovery was, um, as I said, introduced to the United States. I, I don't know exactly when think it was in the early 80s, and it got um, Congress's support because of the research that was behind it, that it would support a lot of struggling readers within the classroom. Right. Well, and I don't want to throw reading recovery under the bus, because I do think that reading recovery is a good program for some students, not for all students. 
And because of the Title I funding that got attached to that from Congress, the reading recovery program was also introduced at a college level for teachers to, part of their certification is to understand what reading recovery was. Right. And if you happen to be a reading specialist, for example, and that was your further education outside of just getting your teaching certificate, they really promote reading recovery. Ah. Some universities do it pretty heavily over others. Um, where we, where I was in Ohio, Ohio State University was one of the biggest promoters in the country on reading recovery. So we had not only had to overcome at the um, IDA branch in Ohio there, overcome the state's perspective, but we were living and sitting in the community of reading recovery scholars. Right. So having to change their perspective was huge. Oh, yeah. Well, especially because of the fact that they're getting paid by Congress to promote this. And so it, it's unfortunate that that this process totally pushed out the understanding of dyslexia and Orrin-Gillingham. Right. You know, it was it, the fascinating thing to me is the perspective was taken, it was an either-or, not an and-both perspective. Right. And, yeah, that is one of the uh, biggest challenges that a lot of... Uh a lot of people just don't understand about special education is that there's a lot of money involved. And uh, those programs that get funding get priority over programs that can really help but don't get funding. Right. And the the interesting thing is if we really truly look at the research and the statistic is one in five people have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, 20% of the population. Right. And that is a significant number that really needs to be addressed within schools. And there is really one way of remediation, and that's a systematic and explicit reading program. And unfortunately, there's not as many states that are buying into that, but it's getting better. It truly is getting better. There's now, I believe, 17 states that have a dyslexia bill Mm -hmm. that have recognized dyslexia as a disability. And because of that, they're doing early screenings, and they're also requiring teachers to have some understanding of dyslexia as a disability and also how to remediate it. Right, that's good. So we're getting there, slow but sure. And actually in Michigan, there is a organization um, called Dys- Decoding Dyslexia that is really pushing toward change in Michigan. Right. It, it's a long road, though. And I think that also ties into my next question, which is, you know, a lot of times parents uh, wind up with a challenge or a fear that their child is struggling, not getting the help they need, and there needs to be an immediate resolution to this problem. They've got to have the help, and they're worried their their kid's going to get far behind in school. And unfortunately, with most school districts, the exact opposite happens. You have to wait and wait and sometimes years before anything can change. Um, What could parents do to help keep them focused on their concerns but not get so impatient that they wind up causing the district to turn against them? That's a great question. I go back to my um, that question that you had asked earlier in regards to that relationship building and the documentation that I had suggested. One of the things about when you meet with your teacher, your child's teacher, and perhaps maybe meet with the school team if the concerns are bigger than just directly working with the teacher, is always, before you leave that meeting, set a time to meet again Mm -hmm. to talk about progress or talk about resolution or to talk about the next steps. The best thing you can do for yourself and for the district is to set the next date of when you will meet because it holds them to a progress themselves. Mm -hmm. It holds them to reporting. It holds them to really looking at that issue within a period of time. Right. It's the best thing you can do for yourself and and for the school is set a date when you'll meet again. And every time you need to continue to ask and push for progress how are we progressing? They're going to make a recommendation of what they need to do. Okay, great. Then we're going to meet in five weeks on this date 
to look at how the progress is. In the meantime, five weeks can seem very long for a family and for a parent. Mm -hmm. Look within your community in resources that you can tap into at a county level, perhaps within your church community, that can support that child with their difficulty. An example would be um, across the country, the Masons have supported reading difficulties, Mm -hmm. and they actually have um, certified Orton-Gillingham instructors, and it's a free resource across the country. Wow. And they also certify teachers to become Orton-Gillingham instructors. They use their site to get the hours uh, to accumulate to become certified as a teacher, working directly with kids, and then they're doing training as they go. Now, usually there's, the waiting lists are long to get into it because it is a free service, mm-hmm. but it's a great, great resource within the community. Now, um, does a child have to have a medical diagnosis of dyslexia in order to qualify for that, or is that just offered to kids who are struggling? No. Offered to kids that are struggling, and they will do, what they do in the first meeting mm-hmm. is they'll do a pre-screening. Ah, okay. To, you know, see exactly where they are. Well, that's great. Yeah, so that is, that's across the country. Right. The Masons are wonderful. Right, but of course I can imagine, like you say, the waiting list must be long on that because uh, it's free and they have a limited uh, availability. Right. Now the other thing for, and I know I'm just using reading as an example here, but the public library. Mm. You know, there are some reading programs and some resources, even librarians, that can help with connecting either with a tutor or you know, with some of the reading programs that they have there um, for a struggling reader and recommendations. And then within your the mental health community for a family who's struggling perhaps with autism, mm-hmm. there are free resources within the mental health community for children with developmental disabilities, which is autism falls underneath that category, as well as emotional impairment or um, mental illness. Oh. So reach out to the county. Right. We, as taxpayers, we've been paying for those services for other people. So we need to realize that we can access them too. Right. Because that's, uh, unfortunately, sometimes you do have to go the extra step when uh, you're having trouble getting all the help you need. Right. Well, that's really good to know because uh, one of the problems that I wanted to talk about too and ask you about is that sometimes for parents, Schools and school districts can treat parental concerns as though they're personal attacks against members of the administration or the teaching staff even, and they wind up taking an adversarial tone in the negotiation process. Having been involved as long as you have as an advocate and working in so many different situations, what can parents do when the school administration or even the district administration starts taking an adversarial approach to working on the problems for the child? Well, I think one of the important things is to understand where that adversarial position is coming from. Mm -hmm. I think what happens is, first, it becomes a um, personal attack. They feel they're being personally attacked, and it's a crisis of confidence in their professionalism. Mm -hmm. That would be at the base of a teacher's response if it becomes adversarial. The other thing is to really understand how funding affects an administration in a district to respond to a family. When funding is, you know, very minimal from the state and from their school district, they're going to take a hard line, going to hold back because of the sheer inability to afford it. And they feel, unfortunately, it becomes a culture. They fear that they, they feel they have to do it um, from a position of denial, as opposed to looking at it as, what is the right thing to do? Can we do something that isn't going to cost extra dollars from the district, but what would be a little extra effort from all of our parts? It, you know, and teachers are following the direction of their administrators within the building and within the district. So it's a leadership top-down 
you know, effect that happens to teachers. They're a lot of times getting told what to say, when to say it, and what not to offer. But unfortunately, I would say that funding directs a lot of it. And then, you know, at times you have also a personal stake in how they feel about their job and and their job security. And, mm-hmm. you know, that happens in any business, though. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, of course, the hard part for parents during all these negotiations is all they know is their child isn't getting the help they need and why aren't you doing it? (laughs) And so it can kind of go both ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of the time I believe that the happens in those meetings is they they lose the focus of what's the most important person in the room and that's the child. Because a lot of the times the child is not present. And so it becomes, in a sense, you know, pitting sides, and that should never be. I would recommend to parents to, in any type of a meeting, is to bring a picture of their child. So, you know, the and put it in the center of the table. So everyone in that room has to look at that picture and try to stay focused on who is the most important person here. Um, again, what would really help prior to those meetings is that relationship building that I had mentioned before. You know, even stopping by and bringing in a cup of coffee or just, a, you know, a card saying thank you is always appreciated. And as you noted, John, in, in your personal experience, it's really, it's helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it, and a, a lot of times, you know, we, we don't want to be this way, but often parents are just busy. We have a lot of things going on in our own lives, in our professional situations, and we can't always take the time needed to go visit the teachers and talk with them because they have a busy schedule too. And uh, unfortunately, because of that, uh, there's sometimes missed opportunities for better communication and relationship building. There are. There are. It's, um, it is very difficult and to to try to get to know that teacher on a, outside of them just being instructors for your child, it's hard. It's difficult. But the same is for them. They don't understand you as a parent and all the busyness that you have either. So anything that you can do, even sending a note in in the backpack to the teacher or writing on the homework, thank you so much for working hard with Susie on this homework or on this you know, classroom project. Right, and that can really help make a difference. Now, one of the areas that your company uh, helps parents deal with, in addition to education, is churches and places of worship. I notice you have a on your website here, you've got a whole uh, listing about that. Can you tell us some about uh, some of the challenges or issues that can arise for parents of special needs kids uh, and what members of uh, churches and places of worship should understand about uh, special needs children and their parents and even special needs adults? We are, you know, our philosophy at Hope is to um, be a a connector, be the bridge between the difficulty of what parents face with children with disabilities. And that's not only in the schools, but also within their worship community and also within their extended community outside of church. But an important thing to understand for families is churches are a lot of the times a safe place to fall for support emotionally. Um, But it's also, the hindrance of it is a lot of people think that it's a one-time, a a one-day-a-week place. And it can be benefit for a family with a child with a disability or also a very scary place because it is only one day a week, and in their perspective, one day a week. So what we try to do, and, and my business partner is really leading the charge on this, Katie Weatherby, um, is she is working with church communities on creating a welcoming and loving environment for families with children with disabilities and helping them include children within their Sunday school as well as within their worship sessions and and then expand it on to adult um, support as well. 
So things that can happen within a church, for example, is a, is a special service for children with disabilities or adults with disabilities that is sensory-friendly, for example, given at a different time or given at the same time that the regular church is given, but in a smaller, quieter sanctuary um, with maybe an assistant pastor giving the lesson. And, you know, other activities outside of the Sunday school that happen during the week. And also creating a Bible study for specifically parents with children with disabilities, and then, then also the children themselves. So it's, you know, within the church community, it's, it's very important. It's a lifelong learning. It's lifelong support outside of the grade, beyond grade 12 of, of public education. And it's so important because as parents, you know, John, we get all used up during the week. And we really need a safe place to fall and a place to get revigorated in um, support. And the other thing that I really have noticed is the private school sector of parochial and Christian schools in regards to that transitioning from their um, educational system onto other um, services that go beyond high school. And because they are not tapped into or not required to follow IDA regulations, there is a loss there of how to support these families. So we do step in and help in that transition. Right. I think that's one of the fascinating aspects of special education in the United States is that private schools and religious schools really have absolutely no requirement to provide any assistance. Uh, some do by partnering with their local public school districts, but um, there really isn't any kind of support at all in uh, religious or private uh, education. And so uh, it's a challenge for parents who uh, maybe have a couple other kids there and they're doing great, but all of a sudden they find out the hard way that uh, there's no support at all. Right, and they don't... Um those parochial and private schools, um, Christian schools, they do not get federal funding. And that is why they don't offer those services. And um, if you do choose to have your child go to um, a private school, then any additional help and support you would have to provide on your own in regards to paying for a service, for example, a speech and language pathologist or a extra support a tutor during the day and that you know that's more because you're already paying money to go to the private school to begin with and you have to add more into it right now um what are what states are required to do is a thing called child find when they are within um at a young age and throughout their public education that if there is a child that is identified in your school of residence, in your public school of residence, of needing um, some qualify under special education in a related service different from direct um, academics, for example, speech language, occupational therapy, physical therapy, the public school is um, required to offer that service to the family, even if they're chosen to, if they choose to go to a private school. Mm-hmm. Now that is can be cumbersome because they have their own schedule that they those providers not only they provide within service within the public school, but then they can go to the private school. But the hours are limited to when they go there, maybe one day a week, and. The recommenda- recommendation for a child could be more than one day a week for 10 minutes. So while there is something available, it isn't always what is needed for their child to make progress. And that's all that the school of residence has to provide in a private school. Right. And I remember when I was a kid, and this was, well, you know, in the 60s, (laughs) um, for a few years I did go to a parochial school and I had to have a speech class and they would send me across the street Mm. to the public school. Yep. 
for the speech class. I would, you know, they'd someone the teacher would say, "Okay, time for you to go," and I'd have to get up, you know, put my coat on, walk across the street, and go to a classroom in the public school. And uh, I can remember a couple of times where I'd show up and the teacher or the uh, speech person wasn't there mm-hmm. and didn't show up at all. So unfortunately, <laughs> these things can uh, sometimes occur, and so it becomes uh, a bit of a challenge. It does. And, you know, parents weigh the benefits of, you know, what when they choose a private school, you know, educational benefits. And, you know, in a parochial and a, and a Christian school, the addition to the religious focus that public schools cannot give. So it's a personal choice. Right. And also it can be, obviously, a financial choice, too. Absolutely. So uh, switching gears now, what kind of advice would you offer special education instructors or school administrators who might be listening in order to better understand the concerns of parents of special needs children? Well, I think the, the important thing to understand that a parent is coming from the base of fear, that it, in their thought processes, if I don't do something now, will I be the cause? of them failing. And the fear of will they be successful. They go from that early on set of understanding that there's a problem, let's say from 3 to 30 within a second. They're instantly thinking, will they go on to college? Will they be married? Will they be successful and happy? And that fear guides so much of where they're Anger, frustration um, is coming from. And I just want administrators and teachers to understand that. They go through that whole process of woulda, shoulda, coulda. Right. And that's guiding everything. And the important thing that I'd like to stress to them is to really look at, they don't have all the answers all the time, but to really look at it is when I, I know more, so I'm going to do more. And constantly looking for those learning opportunities to reach those families and children's within, children within the classroom. Right. Well, that's all part of the thing because not only do the kids need extra help, but the parents often need extra help too because they don't really understand the process or what's available. Absolutely. I always say to my clients, I say, um, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Right. And, you know, my hopes in saying that, that they will have some relief, that they can't have all the answers, but to know that they can find some answers. And by building those school relationships, by building those county relationships, you know, talking with friends, um, talking with acquaintances, they can learn more. Right. And that goes along to the next question, which is the opposite side of that. What advice would you offer to parents of special needs children to better understand the perspective of the school teachers and administrators who have to make and implement these decisions about how their kids are going to be helped in school? Well, John, I'll tell you, I have never met a school district that didn't want to help a child. Mm -hmm. Have I run across occasionally a teacher or administrator that perhaps have forgotten and lost their focus of why they got into education? Sure. But... They come from a basis of caring and liking children, and it is, a, it, it is absolutely a job for them. Um, it's not, you know, they're not the parents. Right. Um, so they are looking at it as a job. They care about their job. But also really understanding what um, the actual school day looks like for a teacher. If you look at the beginning of when the bell rings to the time that it rings to go home and you look at all the hours that are either unstructured time like recess and lunchtime and then you put in their specials of art, music, and gym and you whittle down the actual hours of the day that are for instruction, it is about two hours. Hmm. So if a parent will understand that in any given day, that a teacher is really making those direct teaching, learning new information in a minimal in minimal hours. Now they use other they spread it throughout the day, which is the best way to do it. 
they they really don't have as much time as we think they do. Right. As we as parents think, well, they've been there all day. Mm. <laughs> what are they learning? Um, it it's some it's not really a lot of time for instruction. Mm-hmm. And then they have meetings. They'll have they'll be out of the classroom, and there's a sub in there. Meetings right. for parents with children with disabilities. Yes, or I, meetings, you know, IEPs and conferences and all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And then there are demands that the district puts on them in regards to professional development or meetings that they have to go to, and then there are union meetings, and then you know, so it it becomes a maze for them to work within. So there needs to be some empathy and understanding on that piece, too. So that's, I know I keep focusing back to that relationship piece, but if you can squirrel away a little time or get them a little time to send them a nice note or to tell them how much you appreciate them, that's going to go a long way. Right. That in their hours of the day, they're going to think about that and look at your child a little differently and help them even if it's for five more minutes than they did the day before, that's something. You know as a parent, five more minutes with one of your children can make a monumental difference in their day. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, too, you know, for parents to understand that the teacher, sometimes the teacher may, if it's a special needs teacher or special education teacher is working one-on-one with a child, that's one thing. But there are 15 to 30 other kids in the classroom. Yes. And uh, we tried, we hope that our child is getting all the help they can get. But it's going to be minimal amounts because there are 15, 20, 30 other kids in the classroom who also need help. Maybe not as much as our child, but still they need help too. Absolutely. And again, with school funding, at times, those classes, you know, they're going to be bigger. You know, those classroom sizes, you know, as the funding get cut, they have to cut teachers. Teachers and parapros and the whole thing. Yep. And speaking of budget cuts and regulations and changes, uh, what would you say to state and federal lawmakers that might be listening who may not be concerned or really understand about special education and its importance to the overall educational system? Well, I think one of the if I if I'm approaching a, a congressman, a legislature, I again I go back to money talks. I go back to the issue that is important to their constituents. A lot of times is taxes and expenses down the road, and then I would direct them to the statistics in regards to the numbers of disabilities and and how there is truly in the areas of developmental disabilities, epidemics. In, for an example, um, the National Institute of Health has re- recently come out with a new statistic for children with autism, and it's one in 42 boys wow. have been diagnosed with autism. If you remember what I had said back in the day when my son was diagnosed, the number was one in 2,500. Right. That's only been 15 years. Hmm. And... There is a, probably about 10 years ago, I came across this statistic that it cost a family close to $3 million in a lifetime of a child with autism Wow! to service them. And then let's look at other disabilities. As I had stated before, one in five people have dyslexia. Right. The mental health um, statistic is one in eight so you need to look at it as a whole and understand that over 20% of our population has an identified disability. Now, there's a lot of people who are unidentified that becomes in the light in their lifespan can become a burden on society that will dig into taxes, that will dig into the safety and well-being of not only them but other individuals within a community. So it has to be a very important focus of making decisions for the future. That was the reason why No Child Left Behind was brought on years ago. Now they're going through a re-evaluating um, of No Child Left Behind. 
and those are all very, it's a very, very important piece to education as a whole. If you look within your own school district and you look at a budget line item for uh, their yearly budgets for a district, the number one cost for a district is teacher salary. Number two is building improvement and maintenance. But the number three cost, most expensive, is special education. Right. And so it's very important for Congress to understand as they're moving forward and changing legislation. You know, the one thing about the dyslexia bill, because that happened in Ohio, because it became a bill, districts were then required to hire certified Orton-Gillingham instructors that were available to that are available across the curriculum in general education and as well as special education. And that then required the district to change their funding and bring, you know, in regards to hiring a teacher like that. And it also, then the state legislature looked at things differently in regards to identifying students early. And so it, it, I go back to money and the importance of identifying, because if you service all children with disabilities early, then in the long run, they will be less of a burden on society. Right. Because I read somewhere that, uh, and I don't want to, you know, it's one of the fears that all parents have, but the statistics bear it out, and that is that kids who had trouble in school and kids who had learning disabilities that were not helped early and did not give or get any help uh, in school are more likely to wind up on government assistance or even in, in prison. Correct. And that becomes uh, a much bigger expense to society than special education. It is, and, and you know, so many of the um, advocates for dyslexia, for example, use the prison statistic as a real game changer in the way legislation looks at identifying dyslexia because the the statistics of people incarcerated with dyslexia is astounding, like 80%. Wow. Yeah. And they actually use the third grade, um, fourth grade proficiency in reading as an estimator of beds in prison. Oh, boy. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and frightening <laughs> at the same right. time. Right. So, it, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but I think that I do see change happening in a positive way, though patience is the most important thing to have with, uh, for a parent with a child with a disability, and make sure that you have a lot of great support around you because not all days are going to be great. Um, there's a lot of days that aren't. But if you can surround yourself with supportive people and reach out for any type of education and information that you can ha- that you can get within your community and around your state, you're you're going to be better mm-hmm. at helping your child. Right, and of course the uh, the one thing to also keep in mind is what you pointed out before, and it, you can't always rely on the school to uh, help the most with your child's education. You hope they can, and usually they do, but uh, getting extra support outside of the school can also help make a difference. It, it really does, because your, your child, as we are, we are more than just, your child is more than just their school day, and we are more than just our jobs. And so if we can fill their life outside of school with either additional support to help them academically, but also help them with their self-esteem and personally to find where their strengths are um, and enrich those strengths. They're going to be just happier people and adults. And that's all we really want for our children. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Finally, though, how can uh, how can our listeners get in touch with your company uh, for more information or any of the other services that you offer? Right. The best thing that I would recommend is families visit our website at um, www.hopeforlearning.com. And on our site, you'll see a section that has contact information, and um, you can send a direct email of concern about your child and a question, and then one of the associates um, can get back with you. I've got, we have an office in Cleveland, Ohio, 
and we also have an office in Columbus, Ohio, and then an office in West Michigan. We do also service outside of the states of Ohio and Michigan um, through Skype and virtual uh, meetings that are very successful, and those are legal within you know federal law, so you can so I'm able to Skype into meetings across the country. That's that's amazing how technology has been able to improve that sort of thing. Isn't it? It sure is. Well, I'd just like to say thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us on the podcast today. I think you've helped a lot of people who are listening to this so with a lot of really good information. Yeah, thank you, John. You're very welcome. Our guest was Suzanne Wilcox of Hope Educational Consulting, LLC, and we will put a link to her company's website right on the page for this interview on our website. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening. Thank you.